on behalf of the 16th cabinet and on my personal behalf, I wish to extend a very, very warm welcome to all of you from Dharamsala. Today, uh, we are going to discuss a little more in detail about the vision paper, this book that we uh, launched on 10th April, and this is called uh, Securing Tibet's Future, a vision paper. I'm taking this time out uh, to explain uh, the contents of the uh, vision paper to the non-Tibetan uh, speaking audience, particularly the younger generations of Tibetans who has to understand how uh, the Central Tibetan Administration is intending to move forward into the future and how do we secure our uh, future. Uh, any government or administration uh, will or have to have uh, a vision paper like this. And I understand that this is perhaps the first vision paper by a cabinet. Through this paper, we hope that uh, the Tibetan advocates will have a better understanding of how the Central Tibetan Administration and particularly the executive of the Central Tibetan Administration intends to move forward. So we have divided this uh, vision paper into four parts. Uh, one is the introductory part, uh, which also explains about the uh, geostrategic importance of Tibet and the environmental importance of Tibet and cultural importance of Tibet. These three things are very useful uh, to understand uh, the basic information about Tibet and uh, this can also help you in your advocacy work to explain uh, to people about Tibet. Oftentimes uh, we tend to believe that uh, people around the world know about Tibet but unfortunately that is not the reality. We have to explain uh, Tibet, we have to explain the people of Tibet, we have to explain about the history of Tibet and we have to explain about the current situation inside Tibet to the international, uh, to the international community if we have to be uh, uh, effective uh, voice for our brothers and sisters inside Tibet who are suffering under the Chinese occupation. So therefore, the question is why Tibet matters? What are the benefits for China? Uh, if the Sino-Tibet uh, conflict is resolved? Or what are the benefits for the international community or for the neighborhood? So that is, for, that is why it is important to talk about the geopolitical importance of Tibet. Tibet historically is located between the two most populous nations in the world, India and China. And uh, because of its uh, uh, historical uh, status as an independent state, it had always remained a buffer between these two uh, big nations in Asia. Therefore, there has never ever been a war between India and China because there was never ever a common boundary between India and China. Only after the occupation of Tibet by the People's Republic of China in 1950, and then consequently we were asked to, uh, forced to sign the 17-point uh, agreement under duress. Uh, since then, Tibet was colonized by uh, China and then uh, only then did, did China and India have a common border which 
led to the 1962 war between India and China. Geographically, uh, uh, Tibetans uh, call the land of Tibet as the land or the heavenly abode, the land surrounded by snow mountain ranges, as we say in Tibetan, Kangri Rave Koe Shingham Dir. So on the southern border, you have the Himalayas from uh, covering uh, all of uh, uh, North India. And then on the west, you have the uh, Karakuram. And in the north, you have the Kunlun mountain ranges. And then on the east, you have many layers of uh, uh, mountain, snow-capped mountain ranges that surrounded Tibet. That is why Tibetans define Tibet as the land surrounded by snow mountain ranges. And when Westerners started coming into Tibet, they called Tibet as the roof of the world because of its altitude um, of uh, an average of 4,000 meter, meters above sea level or a little more than 12,000 feet above sea level. For Asians refer to Tibet as the water tower of Asia uh, because uh, all these major rivers that flows into the neighboring India and Pakistan, like the Indus and the Sutlej, or the Brahmaputra that comes into India and Bangladesh, or the smaller rivers that flows into uh, Nepal, or the Irrawaddy or the Salween that flowing into Burma, and uh, the Mekong uh, originating from Tibet and going into Burma, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and Vietnam, five different countries in Southeast Asia. And then, of course, China, the two lifelines of China, the Yellow and the Yangtze, also originate from the Tibetan plateau. And uh, if uh, there are uh, irreversible damages to the uh, fragile environment of Tibet, it will have serious consequences, not only to the Tibetans, but to all the downstream riparian states, including China itself. That's why it's very important to take care of uh, uh, Tibet's environment. And then uh, now Chinese environmental scientists call Tibet the third pole. Uh, apart from the North Pole and South Pole, Tibet has the largest amount of glaciers and permafrost that feeds all these major rivers. Uh, therefore, um, uh, Tibet is called as the third pole. So from these designations of Tibet as a land, uh, I hope it will give you a imaginative uh, view of Tibet and uh, understand the significance of Tibet from a geopolitical uh, perspective. The climate change on Tibet is twice the speed of climate change in the rest of the world, whereas uh, on the poles it's three times uh, the climate change in other parts of the world. So therefore, uh, any change in climatic conditions on the Tibetan plateau will have severe consequences, uh, not only to the Tibetan people, but to all the neighboring countries uh, around Tibet. Uh, therefore, uh, the uh, importance of Tibet uh, cannot be uh, uh, discounted, and uh, there should be a proper stewardship of uh, Tibet's envo environment uh, by involving the Tibetans as stakeholders in, pre in the preservation of uh, uh, Tibet's fragile ecology and environment. And China is building a dam twice the size of three gorges on what they call as the Great Bend, where the Brahmaputra takes a uh, down southward uh, direction. And uh, on that place, uh, China is building a dam twice the size of three gorges dam, which is the biggest in the world. So you can imagine how much land is going to be inundated 
upstream and if, uh, the whole uh, region is seismic because the Himalayas were formed because of the uh, uh, movement of plates between Gondwana and Asian plates. Therefore, uh, scientists say that Himalaya is still growing for all the downstream, downstream countries who are not able to speak up to China right now. Uh, it's time that they raise this issue because China does not share any hydrological data with any of its uh, downstream countries or its riparian states. The third uh, reason why Tibet matters is to do with uh, the spiritual and cultural influence of Tibet. Many people believe that since uh, Tibet uh, right now is occupied by the People's Republic of China, uh, Tibetan language also might have something to do with Chinese language, but unfortunately that is not the case. Uh, Tibetan language came from uh, India, and Tibetan Buddhism also came from India. Uh, we must have had the biggest transliteration house in the world in 8th century when we translated every available Sanskrit text into Tibetan on the advice of Shantarakshita, the Indian master who visited Tibet around that time. <clears throat> so we are an extension of uh, one part of the ancient Indian wisdom. And we are very proud to say that we are a repository of this very uh, important uh, knowledge system, which is relevant not only uh, to the situation those days, but it's much more relevant today uh, in the 21st century when we hoped or expected this world to be much more peaceful but unfortunately it turned out to be the other way around. So the Buddhism that, that spread to Tibet, uh, Tibet and developed its own unique characteristics and uh, Tibetan Buddhism also spread to many parts of Central Asia. Uh, therefore, uh, the influence of Tibetan Buddhism also cannot be discounted. Uh, uh, the potential to spread uh, peace and uh, uh, more non-violence in this world uh, uh, has its potential in the wisdom of the Buddha. Uh, therefore, the cultural uh, influence of the Tibetans is also very important to bring in uh, more peace and uh, uh, stability in the whole region. Now, these are the three main uh, reasons why Tibet matters, not only to the Tibetans, but to all the neighboring countries and to the international community. Now we will talk a little bit about the current policies of the, of the, of the uh, government of the People's Republic of China inside Tibet. Uh, the first thing is cultural genocide of Tibet, that we are dying a slow death culturally. Uh, because everything that is uh, uh, devised by the Chinese government in terms of uh, its policies and programs inside Tibet uh, aimed at destroying the very identity of the Tibetan people, whether it's to do with Tibetan language or whether it's to do with Tibetan culture or religion or way of life or protection of its uh, environment. So it is of utmost importance for us to understand the situation inside Tibet and be able to tell the international community as to what exactly is going on inside Tibet. The intensive surveillance. Now, surveillance in all forms in fact, uh, China is the only country that spends more money on internal security than external security. That itself manifests a deep distrust between the uh, ruling.
rulers and the ruled, whether it be uh, the Tibetans or the Uyghurs or the Mongols or the Hong Kongers, the strict surveillance is very much akin to the George Orwell's 1984 uh, coming into reality where the state surveils everything and uh, the whole administrative uh, um, structure has been designed in such a way that uh, very very similar to the German SS of each, uh, before the Berlin Wall broke down. So everybody spies on everybody. China employs all kinds of artificial intelligence, whether it's in the form of electronic identification or geolocation or DNA profiling of the Tibetans or iris scanning of the Tibetans. All these are meant to use against the Tibetans uh, to control more and more and uh, be incarcerated uh, in the name of national security or social stability because most of the laws they have framed are very ambiguous and it could be interpreted at different levels by different authorities. Information is one area that Chinese government controls all the time. In the last several years, nobody has been able to move into Tibet. Nobody has been able to come out of Tibet. So it is in a way completely locked down, totally shut down from the international community. And I'm sure that many of the diplomats that have worked in Beijing will vouch for the fact that Chinese government does not appreciate diplomats or journalists going into Tibet. And even if they were allowed, uh, they would be under strict uh, guidance uh, of the local guides uh, who will be chaperoning them when they travel around Tibet so they don't get to see the reality of the situation. If anybody is caught uh, receiving information and distributing information, then that, that person lands up in big trouble. And if anybody is caught sending any information out of Tibet, then that person definitely lands up in jail, uh, being incarcerated and tortured for, uh, uh, for his action. And now every action of an individual is linked to the welfare of all your near and dear ones. 157 Tibetans have self-immolated so far, hoping against hope that the Chinese government will pay some attention to their plight, or hoping against hope that the international community will come to their rescue, but to no avail so far. But I keep telling my people that their contribution, the accumulation of their contribution will not go in vain. Their, their efforts, their sacrifices will definitely bear fruit in the uh, uh, long run. There, was, there were times when one monk self-immolated in Vietnam and became an international news and another person self-immolated in Czech Republic in 1968. But even after 157 self-immolations, there has not been enough attention from China as well as the international community. Now, why do you think these Tibetans are self-emulating? And most of them are between the age of 17 to 35. They have never witnessed independent Tibet, or they have never witnessed cultural revolution. They only see what the Chinese government is doing to the Tibetan people right now on the ground. Striking at the very root of Tibetan identity, uh, particularly after President Xi Jinping's assumption of power in China, there have been a lot of uh, new policies and programs aimed at eradication of the languages of the national uh, nationalities inside China. So at one time, we did fear <coughs> uh, a lot of demographic aggression from China. 
of course, uh, the Chinese population is increasing in Tibet, but uh, it's not increasing as much as we feared. Uh, therefore, uh, it looks like the Chinese government has changed its uh, policy. If they are not able to flood Tibet with uh, Chinese, uh, completely overwhelming a minority community by a majority community, uh, then the next step is how do we change the younger generations of Tibetans into Chinese? And that is exactly what they are doing through the colonial-style boarding schools. We are definitely not against education. We are definitely not against bilingualism. Education is very much necessary. Bilingualism is also uh, important because China has 1.4 billion population uh, out of uh, 8 billion. So it's a sizable population. Uh, and, and in times to come, there will be many more people speaking Chinese. So it is, it's important for us to learn Chinese. But what we are against is complete sinification of the Tibetan people, the young generations of Tibetan people who are taught only how to respect communism, how to abide by communist rules and laws, how to maintain allegiance to the Communist Party, uh, and Chinese version of uh, Tibetan history. So these are all aimed at complete sinification. Uh, and this is at a much larger scale. Of course, they do uh, try uh, sinocization of Tibetans at every level um, in different ways. But language is at the very heart or root of our identity. And therefore, China is right now striking at the very root of our identity. If this policy goes on for another two, three decades, then one can imagine what will happen to the younger generations of Tibetans who would be thinking, behaving, and talking exactly how, uh, like the Chinese do. So that is a very dangerous trend, and that is something that we have to be very, very concerned about uh, by both the Tibetans inside and the Tibetans outside, Tibetan Tibet supporters all around the world to seek uh, and garner support in, in closing down these uh, boarding, colonial-style boarding schools and uh, urge the Chinese government to move towards providing holistic education to the Tibetan children, particularly Tibetan language, culture, religion, and history. The politicization of uh, religion and uh, uh, violation of uh, freedom of belief now, from the time Tibet was independent until now, we all know that the, uh, how many monasteries and nunneries have been destroyed inside Tibet. Talking about more than 6,000 monasteries and nunneries and more than 1.2 million Tibetans having died directly or indirectly because of China's rule in Tibet. Number of monks and nuns have come down, number of monasteries and nunneries have come down. Um, over the last uh, one and a half decade or two decades, uh, the management of the monastic institutions have been taken over by multiple security agencies and the United Workfront Department. So Tibetans have no say in the management of monasteries. Tibetans don't even have a say in where they want to go. Uh, all the movements and monks, are, monks and nuns are being uh, restricted. Uh, you need at least four or five different permits if you are traveling across Tibet um, as a monk and nun. Then now the Chinese government also wants to be responsible for um, setting up uh, 
the curriculum in the monasteries. The atheist Chinese government wants to be responsible for setting up curriculum in the, uh, for religious studies in the monasteries. Um, the use of the monastic areas, uh, the religious areas, uh, uh, the rules have also been amended uh, very recently to make it more difficult for uh, Tibetan monks and nuns to undertake their regular studies and be always uh, on the watch of the Chinese uh, security forces. Now the Chinese government even wants to be responsible for reincarnation of lamas, what they call as living Buddhas in China. So this is very unique to Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, even though Buddhism is there in many parts of the world, uh, the uh, uh, practice of reincarnation, uh, looking for a new uh, soul in a new body once a person dies, is very unique to Tibetan Buddhism. Um, now, this uh, Chinese, China is more concerned about the 15th yet to come Dalai Lama than the 14th Dalai Lama who is still living here in India. Um, China believes that if they can get hold of the 15th Dalai Lama, then they will be able to control Tibet. But I want to tell the Chinese leaders, have you not learned enough lessons from the Pension Lama saga? Because when His Holiness the Dalai Lama recognized this boy, Kendichu Nima, as Pension Lama in 1995, the Chinese government took offense and they, they selected their own Pension Lama. And soon after, the real Panchen Lama, recognized by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, just vanished along with his family. And we still don't know whether he's alive or not, or whether he has been provided uh, with the education for him to carry uh, on his religious responsibilities, which we seriously doubt, even if he's alive. So the boy, Kansen Nobu, selected by the Chinese government, is not respected by any Tibetans in any part of Tibet. And therefore, he doesn't even live in Tibet, his traditional throne in Shigase. And whenever he travels to Tibet, uh, uh, people are forced to go to listen to him. And his pictures are not being sold in the Tibetan market in Lhasa. You see only the pictures of the 10th Pension Lama. And that is how people react or uh, show their displeasure at Chinese uh, choice of Pension Lama. So my question is to, to the Chinese leadership. I don't know whether the present leadership will be alive by that time or not. But even then, do they really want a lifelong headache on their head or not? Because if and when that time comes, if China chooses a Dalai Lama or the Tibetans choose a Dalai Lama, then this is going to go on for a whole life. So do they really want a problem? a lifelong problem or not? That is something for the Chinese leadership to think about. Now, the last part of this first section is the way forward. Now, how, what is the solution for this vexed uh, conflict, for this Sino-Tibet conflict that has been lingering over the last 63 years since we came into exile, or more than 72 years since we were forced to sign this 17-point agreement? Considering the reality of the situation inside Tibet, his Holiness, the Dalai Lama, started thinking about the middle way approach, which is a Buddhist concept, avoiding extreme polarities. And in this case, uh, one polarity of the, is the situation of Tibet 
the historical status of Tibet as an independent state. On the other polarity is the situation of Tibet under the uh, occupation of the People's Republic of China. So we have to find a middle way whereby the Tibetans will have the freedom to practice uh, its religion, uh, promote its culture, its way of life, uh, and protection of its environment. So these are some of the essential components of uh, the middle way, whereby Tibetans will have the freedom to uh, pro protect and practice and promote their own uh, identity. So this idea also came into His Holiness' mind uh, way back in 1973-74, and one can imagine the situation then. It was at a time uh, when the Cultural Revolution was at its peak, led by the Gang of Four, Mao Zedong's wife, uh, which uh, culminated in 1976. From 1966 to 76, for 10 long years, everything old was being destroyed in Tibet, in the whole of China, but more so in Tibet. His Holiness really feared that the identity of the Tibet, Tibetan people may not remain. And since, then time, since that time, he has been proposing the middle way uh, policy. And uh, in the early 80s, when there were little freedom uh, during uh, Deng Xiaoping's time and Huyaobang's time, uh, there was little respite to restore Tibetan language and Tibetan culture inside Tibet for a few years. But then again, the, uh, when Xi Jinping became the party secretary, he clamped down on Tibet and introduced martial law. And since then, the situation has been uh, deteriorating. But despite uh, uh, the response from the Chinese side, His Holiness has always uh, pushed for the most reasonable approach, which is the middle way approach. Or we did send exploratory teams to explore uh, possible negotiations between China and Tibet uh, way back in 1982 and 84, which did not uh, yielded the result as we expected. There was also a possibility for dialogue in 1989, which also dissipated soon after, and uh, which was again revived in 2002. So this policy was proposed by His Holiness, was approved through uh, opinion poll by the majority of Tibetans, and unanimously adopted by the Tibetan parliament. So this position remains our official uh, position. There is no change to that, but we'll definitely discuss about the change in strategy as to how to achieve this policy. We still believe that even though from 2002 to 2010 there were nine rounds of dialogue, um, it could not fulfill the expectations that we had uh, at the beginning of the dialogue. And soon after the Olympics got over, uh, that round of dialogue also dissipated in 2010. So since 2010 to 2013, there have been no traction whatsoever on the dialogue, uh, mainly because there is no positive response from the Chinese side. Uh, we'll discuss a little more about the uh, way forward after that. Uh, but this is the first section where I've tried to focus in your advocacy work when you explain to other people about Tibet, uh, about the geopolitical significance of Tibet as to why Tibet matters, why Tibet is so important for the whole region. And we, if we are able to resolve the Sino-Tibet conflict through the middle way approach, 
or the policy, then this could contribute a lot towards bringing more security and stability in the whole region in Southeast Asia, in Southeast Asia and Central Asia. So thank you very much for listening, and please do uh, have a look at the uh, uh, vision paper. Please go through this document as much as possible, and I'm sure when I, as I speak, Tibet.net will also display the link on Tibet.net where you can uh, have access to these documents. Thank you very much.